You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So we're talking about the, uh, developing a, a kind of automatic, compassionate response to your partner's collapse of mentalizing rather than uh, responding uh, with the sense of feeling unseen by them and then having your own mentalizing collapse. Really what we're trying to do is track and monitor the state of mind that our partner has and if they, if we notice that their mentalizing is collapsing, engage in activities with them that reboot their mentalizing. Um, I think that it's useful to understand that what you get out of doing that is your partner is online and available to you and if you don't do that they're offline and not available to you. So you do get something out of monitoring them and helping them stay in balance and mentalizing. Um, Even though it's often unequal in terms of who gets what in the relationship. Mutual relationships are not equal and it's important to really understand that. Some people need more than, the person that you're with will need more or less than you do, right? If they need less than you do, then you're the one who needs more resources in the relationship. Uh, And that can change and vary over time depending on what's happening. And so you don't divide the resources and and keep sums to to make sure that there's an equal distribution. You distribute the resources as the other person's needs require them. And hopefully there's enough resources in the relationship that everybody's needs can be fully met. But you really do try to divide them in such a way that the the majority of your partner's needs are being met, while at the same time the majority of your needs are also being met. Um, my grandmother used to say to me, we really put some thought into this, George, and we tried to give you the same thing, all of you kids, the same thing, to which I replied, so what you're saying is that you met none of our needs ever. (laughs) 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 Totally ungrateful child. We all got the same blue shirt and nobody wanted it. (laughs) We all got the same bag of saltwater taffy from Atlantic City, (laughs) which sat on the shelf for years. (laughs) So, that's a joke. I'm testing your mentalizing. So then the question is, how do you maintain a compassionate awareness of your partner uh, so that when you begin to make these uh, um, negotiations, I like those terms, but um, I can understand. When you begin to talk through the terms of how your relationship is going to function, are you being aware uh, of uh, your partner and how those kinds of discussions 
can cause the effects of their conditioning to arise and are you able to monitor that? So one of the things that's useful to do early on is to, to uh, uh, have an agreement about when it gets too difficult for, for either one of you that you can tap out temporarily and then come back to it when you're resettled or, or let your partner know that you're losing your, uh, either your emotional equilibrium or your, your, your mentalizing is collapsing so that, that they can then stop moving forward with the discussion that you're having and start helping you come back into balance so that you actually are available to, to have the discussion and that you, you don't need to wrap up these, these um, conversations quickly. You need to let them unfold until they're really settled, until each of you has the sense that I'm willing to do this and that I don't have a, a, a problem with it. Because if you don't do that, they won't settle even if you agree to settle them because you won't be able to do it over time. And depending on your attachment strategy, um, you can come at to this in different ways. For instance, dismissing uh, adults will settle for anything in order to get the relationship to be stable uh, and return to the original terms that they wanted. And then they won't follow through on, on, on the agreements that they make if they didn't actually want to do them. Um, because in their mind, uh, settling the issue was what was on the table and not actually having to follow through with the things that they agreed to. Um, I, I promised I'd do that. Uh, and then the person responds, no, 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 that meant you actually have to, had to do it. And, and they say, no, 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 I, I promised I would do it. That's what you were asking, not that I would do it. And, and so uh, you have to be uh, really able to stay in there and really be able to track your partner and then to respond, them, respond to them in a compassionate way. Compassion is about empathy. So you have to be able to be empathetic to your partner. And that means the third level of compassion and empathy is what we call it in Buddhism, where you actually feel in your body the experience of them. Uh, without that, uh, really, you don't have much capacity for compassion. And so you'll have to begin to develop that. Compassion is a skill that you can develop. It has several pieces to it. The first is that you're able to attune to somebody. So um, attuning, I'm attuning, I'm attuning, I'm not attuning, I'm not attuning, I'm attuning, I'm attuning now, I'm attuning now. We're very sensitive to attunement and there's different degrees of difficulty with attunement. At this distance, you can attune to almost anybody. You'd have to have a real hard time regulating the emotional experience of attunement at this distance. Most people can do that. If you get close enough, three feet, say, would be the maximum distance to somebody where you can look into their face and track the emotional micro-expressions that they might exhibit, it creates a much more intense experience of the other person and a much more intense experience for you in being and able to maintain that. Well, we can easily maintain uh, eye contact here. Um, do you think that we could do the same thing if we were in the, in the 
knees together gaze. It would be close enough really where there would be a much more intense emotional experience that accompanies that, right? Most of us urbanites have learned to suppress the micro expressions in our face pretty well. It has to be a fairly strong or surprising experience for us not to be able to just completely still the face and control how that is presented. But at about a foot distance, you can read the fluctuations of the iris that the other person is experiencing and it's an entirely unconscious understanding of what's happening which comes from the, the first few months of life where you're literally this close to your caregiver and you basically gather a lot of information in terms of their, their interest and response to you based on the fluctuations of their iris and you learn a whole language of communication that um, is un impossible to mask. You can't mask your revealing it and you can't, um, um, you know, you, you can take it in uh, from the other person. Is that making sense? How many people do you let get a foot away from you, right? You're, most people are very limiting in terms of how people get. And if somebody tries to get that close and you don't want them there, you withdraw, you step back away from them because they're intruding into your space because they can read you in a way that you might not want them to read you and you can't protect yourself from that. Um, in an intimate relationship, hopefully you're with somebody where you can be effectively this close to them and that there's an open, unfiltered exchange of information which is largely unconscious and that you can allow that to happen and that they can be completely authentic in that way because you have this compassionate experience of holding the space for them. So the attunement is the first skill to learn and you want to really track how difficult the emotional response is the closer somebody gets to you and to really work at being able to regulate the experience of close, physical closeness to someone else. Again, this is very uh, dependent on your attachment conditioning. Secure kids are held enough that that level of intimacy is easy for them. Dismissing uh, kids, the dismissing adults were children who were profoundly neglected as children and so they weren't held well enough or often enough that they learn that skill and it often creates in them an anxiety that they're actually emotionally blind and you get, you get somebody that close and they can't read the fluctuations of the other person's iris because they didn't have the training in childhood to do it. So and is it limited to childhood or does it change your It can change if you have a caring, intimate partner who's willing to uh, teach you if you didn't learn it in, in childhood. So for dis dismissing adults, one of the biggest challenges is getting an embodied sense of emotion in the body and then understanding what those sensations mean. It's pretty easy to be able to draw into awareness the experience, but it's like listening to a foreign language because you haven't been conditioned to understand what that pattern means. You, you, you have the emotional sense, but you don't know which one it is. 
And so you're going to need uh, instruction in that because none of us knew, there's no knowing, there's just what we're taught in our family systems. And so that can happen. You can, if you have a sensitive of enough partner, they can read the fluctuations of your irises and feed back to you what their empathetic experience of that is. And then you can tie that into the sensations in the body and understand that that's what that feeling is. That's the process. But you would have to be willing to be vulnerable to somebody to do that. And that's one of the things that's so challenging for dismissing people to do because uh, that wasn't their, being vulnerable was not a good response to the conditions in which they grew up. And so they didn't learn to do that. And they don't, they don't have the experience that it can be safe. That's the thing. There's a, a chart of 40 uh, emotions that we put in the Dropbox, which is from the Finnish study of, of this. And it is actually a map of what the sensations the pattern of sensations in the body that represent 40 different emotional states. So that if you want to expand your knowledge of that, you can do that. And there's also a website called the Atlas of Emotions, which has all 220 emotional states that we have English words for. This is actually a smaller number. Japan has probably twice as many words to describe emotional states as we do in English. They have very specific ones like, um, I think it's, uh, um, oh, I can't remember the name, but they actually have a word that describes the response to being surprised by sunlight dappling through spring sycamore leaves. Wow. <laughs> which I kind of think is cool. And if you've ever just happened into a, a grove of trees in the spring when the light is changed into that yellowy green, it is quite surprising and enlivening. So, um, <clears throat> so the first part is attunement and the second part is developing a capacity for empathy. So the three levels of empathy, your visceral response when you witness somebody else in physical or emotional pain. And understand the importance of this is that if you witness somebody else's pain and you have the uh, whingy response to that, it acts as a break for when you're harming somebody. If you hurt somebody and you have to have a shared experience of their pain in doing so, it acts as a break that slows you down. And if you don't allow yourself that experience, then there's no break. And you can often act in a relationship in a way that's very damaging and in the moment be carried away and not notice how it's landing on the other person. And if you do that too often in a relationship, it won't survive it. The second one is you're able to read the, the facial expressions in body language. And while there are some universal facial expressions, most of the time you're going to have to learn the facial expressions in body language of the person you're with and understand what they mean to them. So you become a very good student of the person that you're with 
and pay attention to how they respond to things so that you can understand where they're likely to be in the moment. <laughs> Which is, not a chance in hell I'm ever doing that. Is that what that expression is? <laughs> So there isn't a universal emotion, there's the, the emotions that are in your family system. You learn through instruction by your caregivers which emotions are which, and you also learn how to regulate them. Oh, you're sad, have a cookie. You've just learned what sadness is and how to regulate it, right? Um, Hopefully you have a good enough caregiver who's able to, to empathetically connect to you well enough that they have a pretty good idea of what's going on and then they're able to respond to you in a good enough way. In terms of secure attachment, how often does a caregiver need to respond to their child in a good enough way for them to develop secure attachment is a question which they've answered. So. 30% of the time. The last time you were in school and took a test and got 30% on it, what grade did they give you? But in baseball, if you're batting 300, that's pretty damn good. Correct. That's really good. So understand that security and attachment in relationship to your caregivers is a low bar, right? So I want, I just want you to understand that so that if you don't have secure attachment, you had extremely adverse conditions in childhood. That it isn't a great failing of yours that this happened, it's just the natural outcome of conditioning. And also, your caregivers did not take good enough care of you. Um, but the time that they, they took care of you is over, right? It is not up to the, your parents to fix you now. Their, their time in charge of your care is, for many of us, long gone. <laughs> it is incumbent on us to do this now, right? And, it, and one, I, one of the things I think that's so exciting about doing attachment work is it's very changeable if you do the right things. And if you don't do the right things, it's very resi resilient to change. So it's important to really understand what needs to happen and to do the right things. Because if you do, it changes rapidly. And if you don't, it's very resistant to change. And so uh, if you put effort into doing the wrong things for your particular attachment strategy, it can be frustrating and you can give up on it because it's so resilient to change if you don't do the right things. I use an, as an example of this my dad. My dad, all growing up, had maybe 50 uh, orchids. In the, the 10 years or the 15 years that I lived with my dad while he was growing orchids, there was not a single bloom on any of those orchids. So I said to my grandmother, who is a prize-winning grower of orchids and has had ribbons all over the place, uh, why is it that my dad's orchids never bloomed, and she said, because he doesn't do what they like, right? 
which is an example of this, right? You really do need to take care of the person that you're with in the way that they value. Because if you don't do that, regardless of what you do, they won't feel taken care of. That's all. That's all it is. So you can put the same amount of effort into taking care of them in a way that they want and they'll feel very good and very taken care of. And you could put twice the energy in taking care of them in a way that they don't care about and it won't matter to them. You can put twice the energy in the, doing the wrong things to shift your attachment strategy, it won't budge. And you put half that amount of energy into doing the right thing and it will move quickly toward security. So that's, it's good to know that. The organized attachment strategies, people do pretty well, pretty much the same in terms of satisfaction in life. It's the disorganized people that fall off a cliff and uh, don't do nearly as well. So um, I know that uh, I get pushback sometimes from disorganized people saying that I'm representing it in a way that, that makes them feel like they're not as good. But I, I, I really want you to understand, and if you also, if you encounter people who you see this thing happening to, security is much easier. It is much, much easier. And the amount of things that you need to do to get to security are simple and, and they don't last that long, and it makes everything much easier. It's worth doing. Um, and you didn't do anything wrong to get the original attachment conditioning, right? You did actually the right thing. You did everything that was requested of you in that situation and came out the way that you would expect that to be. So I just really want to be emphatic about that because it, it is so much easier to be secure than it is either to be insecure or disorganized. Um, the third piece of compassion is the capacity to regulate emotional intensity, so empathetic emotional intensity. The better you are at regulating empathetic emotional intensity, the more spun out your partner can get. The more spun out your partner can get means that they can take bigger risks in their exploration and come back and know that you'll be able to handle it. And the, the greater their capacity to handle the empathetic emotional experience of you, the more risk you can take in your own exploration. Because you know that if you get spun out, you can come back and they'll take care of it for you. If you find that your experience of the emotional dysregulation of the other person is too much for you, you are either consciously or unconsciously going to begin to try and limit their exploration so that they don't spin you out. Is that making sense? And then uh, you're setting the limit for their exploration in a way that can come back in, in the form of a resentment to you. Uh, it can undermine the, the trust, particularly if you're not um, straightforward in what you're doing. I think it's a bad idea for you to go do that, not because it's a bad idea for you, but you get emotionally dysregulated and I don't like when you come back that way. So it's a bad idea for you to go is not a straightforward communication, so you're undermining the epistemic trust of the relationship by not being completely truthful. 
you're violating uh, some of the maxims in terms of discourse in the relationship because you're not being truthful. Is that making sense? It would be fair to say that you go out and you get so dysregulated that when you come back I can't handle it. That's a different way of saying the same thing, right? So you want to get really good at emotionally regulating yourself so that you have real uh, capacity to emotionally regulate your partner so that they're they have a sense of freedom in their exploration and that they can come back to you and you'll take care of it for them if they're dysregulated. Because if that happens to you, they do it for you. So it feels fair. We really have this sense of fairness, this sense of morality, and, and if that's violated, uh, it leads to contempt. When you notice in uh, relationships where partners that were previously loving, one is finding contempt for the other partner, it's usually because their, their moral code has been violated by the partner in some fashion. Is that making sense? Th then again, this is an examination of how you're actually doing it. So, um, you're tracking your emotional intensity, and you're tracking, you're mentalizing your response to what's going on with them. You're tracking uh, uh, the empathetic experience of them and you're keeping them separate. And then you're uh, monitoring um, what it is that you know that you need to do in these circumstances to help them regulate and seeing whether you're, you're doing them and then monitoring their reaction to what you're doing to see if it's actually having the effect of regulating them or not. <laughs> All of that. Um, so, in the beginning, it's paying attention to each of these aspects of that and seeing whether or not you can do it. But then once you've learned them well enough, the, the automatic side, the procedural side, just takes over and it just does them. Secure people who mentalize it as six to nine on the scale without any intervention don't think consciously of any of this. They simply respond. I can give you an example of that. I was with my cousin, uh, Catherine, and uh, we were going out to a Broadway show and we got off this, uh, the, I, I got off the subway in Grand Central and, and we were going to walk over uh, to the theater and we, we were taking a shortcut through one of the big uh, skyscrapers that had one of those, you know, corporate uh, cathedral lobbies, you know, multiple stories, black granite, a lot of glass. And they had one of those two-story escalators that came down. And um, as we were walking across the lobby, um, I was fascinated by the echo of the click of her high heels in the, in the, in the big empty space. And uh, a guy who's, I thought of this old guy, but he's, you know, he was younger than I am now. And he <laughs> tripped at the top of the escalator and started rolling down the escalator. And I'm thinking, amazing visual. <laughs> <laughs> not the most empathetic response, not even to physical pain. I'm just thinking, wow, look at that. And, <laughs> and my cousin, 
takes off running across the, uh, the lobby. She switches off the escalator and then she takes the escalator two steps at a time and catches the guy in the middle. <laughs> in, in her heels. <laughs> Men think they're tough, but women can do the same thing and in heels. <laughs> that famous Ginger Archer line, isn't it? You think it's tough dancing the way Fred Astaire does. I do it backwards and it heals. <laughs> so she comes down and I'm standing at the bottom of the escalator and the, the, you know, the techs come and all of the people come and they finally release her after her statement and she's covered in blood and she wears really good clothes. And I'm going, the thought was, I didn't think of doing that. I didn't think of even breaking stride as I continued <laughs> across the lobby. <laughs> how did you think of that? That was my question for you. How did you think to do that? How did you know how to turn off an escalator? How did, how did you know that? She says, I don't know. I just saw it and thought that's what I needed to do and went and did it. So that's that automatic, compassionate response that comes uh, that when you, uh, when you have conditioning that produces that, that's kind of what you have. When you have the kind of childhood I had, you, have the, you just continue walking across the lobby. I made a, a evaluation of that, and I thought her approach was better. And that was actually the first time I, I tried to investigate compassion, because it was so impressive to me that she would do that, and that I thought my, my approach was actually uh, I, almost self-contemptuous because it was so unfeeling. <clears throat> um, so I know you can learn all these skills because I've learned them, right? You <laughs> from a, you walk across the lobby. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so you can learn them, but in, in primary relationships where you're really trying to put this two-person psychology system together, you want to pay special attention to your person and you want to learn them really well. And you want to learn them really well in the service of taking care of them well. And I, I always like to emphasize what you're getting out of this, because you have to do it is you're getting somebody who's in great shape to take care of you if you do that, and if you don't do it, you've, you, you don't know whether the person is going to be in good enough shape to take care of you. So you're really focused on doing this so that you can go do your solo exploration and so that you can live a life that's full of meaning to you, but which you won't be able to do if you don't have people who support you in doing that. And in order to have those people, you have to support them because they won't do it otherwise. You're following all of these links. Which is why you want to be super good at really understanding what's going on with your partner and to be able to anticipate what needs to happen for them so that you can be their best support. Guess what happens if you're, you're their best support? They can't wait to come back to you and tell you about everything. Uh, they can't wait to reconnect to you after they've gone on their exploration. They can't wait to share what's meaningful to them to you. 
How rare is it to find somebody who's really willing to open up and share the most meaningful things? Uh, it's quite unusual, I find. Quite valuable in terms.